This time I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the scripture passage we will be reading and considering this morning from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1 to 17. If you're just joining us today, we've been making our way through the book of Isaiah, and for our Advent series, Pastor Daniel led us through the glorious servant songs of Isaiah, ending with the fourth one in the chapter just before this, Isaiah chapter 53, about the suffering servant, and here we find ourselves in chapter 54, and so let us give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be Far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created a smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to it by the presence of the Holy Spirit at work here through the mouths of his servant and the hearts of his people. Amen. 
Loved ones, this passage before us, we find Isaiah calling us to respond, to respond to the good news of the servant of the Lord who came to bring us salvation. And if you notice in the opening verse there, he uses three different verbs in that opening line. He calls us to shout with joy, to break forth with a cheer, and to cry aloud with gladness. In other words, he's saying, let joy explode out of you. And we don't typically see this kind of expressive joy and celebration in life, but occasionally we do. Just last week, the people of Argentina were all holding their breath during the penalty shootouts of the World Cup. And then, in a moment, they exploded with joy when they saw that winning goal hit the net. And you can look it up. There's a video of the two Argentinian commentators responding to that victory. And it is a rare example of this kind of explosive joy. Uh, One of the commentators, he yells out, goal, with great excitement. And then he begins to choke up with joy. And you can see the tears starting to well up in his eyes as he yells out and repeats over and over and over again, Argentina's campeón del mundo, repeating that Argentina was the winner of the World Cup. Two grown men there sitting there, the commentators, and they're shouting with joy. They're crying with tears of joy, hugging each other. That's the kind of joy that Isaiah is describing that we should have in response to the Christmas story. The Christmas story which led to the cross, which then led to the resurrection of Christ from the dead, and led again to his ascension and is leading to his triumphant return. That is the kind of explosive joy that Isaiah wants us to have even on this Christmas morning. And we have great reason for rejoicing today. We have good news to shout and sing about, and I want us to consider that from this text. We find four reasons from this passage why we should rejoice, four reasons why Christ was born. And the first one is this, Christ was born to set his people free from the law of sin and death. It's fascinating that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he quotes from this passage Here in his letter to the Galatians, it's found in chapter 4 of his letter to them. And it seems that the Apostle Paul has this whole chapter of Isaiah in the background of his mind, kind of playing like the background music as he's writing his letter to the Galatians. He's thinking about all the content that we just read from Isaiah 54. And he shows us there how the birth of the Son of God set into motion the fulfillment of this chapter in Isaiah. We read it earlier in the reading of the gospel. Paul there in Galatians 4 says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so we consider this, that the son of God was born as a man under the law, submissive to the law of God, in order to free us from the law's demands of us. And that raises the question, what does the law of God demand of us? Well, two things we can simply say, perfect obedience and punishment for 
disobedience. That is what God's law demands of us. And here is the problem, right? That by our own efforts, we do not perfectly obey God's law. Rather, we disobey his law repeatedly, and therefore, we deserve his punishment. And that's what Isaiah means here by referring to God's people under the law as barren and desolate, as a barren and desolate woman. He is speaking of Israel, personifying her as a woman, saying that Israel as a people of God could not secure a life of blessedness, a full and abundant life of blessedness by their own obedience to the law of God. They could not do it. Instead, what did they do? Time and time again, they brought upon themselves punishment, God's judgment after judgment after judgment for their disobedience. We find then that trying to earn God's acceptance, his favor under the law by our own striving, it is like slavery, hard work, without peace of freedom. But Paul tells us that Christ came for this purpose, born under the law to perfectly obey that law in our place and also to suffer the punishment that we deserve in our place. And what is the result of both Jesus' perfect obedience and his suffering on the cross for us? Well, by faith in him, we are no longer under the law, Paul says, but we are under grace. Therefore, a person can have perfect peace with God without fear of punishment by a small, simple, sincere faith in Jesus Christ. That's all. By faith in Christ, God receives you as a beloved child of his, adopted by grace, apart from any works done by you. Because Christ was born to set us free from the demands of the law, we have great reason for rejoicing. God neither demands of you, Christian, that you perfectly obey his law, nor that you suffer the punishment for your disobedience against God's law. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled both the demands of the law of God. He fulfilled that perfect obedience for you, and he also suffered the punishment that you deserve. You're no longer under the law, but you're under grace. And so rejoice, for Christ was born to set us free from the law of sin and death. Secondly, we find that Christ was born to give us second birth. And that line comes from the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But the truth is much older than that. It's found all throughout verses 1 through 8 of the chapter we read. At the end of verse 1, we hear this. Look at it again. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. And according to the Bible, every person is born into this world with the sinful nature because of original sin that we all inherit from our first father, Adam. We're all naturally born into, therefore, a kind of slavery to sin and death without any escape. The law of God, as perfect and pure as it is, cannot give us freedom or new life, and that's why God's people was always a small people before the coming of Jesus. God's children were very few. But long before the giving of the law, God made a glorious big promise to Father Abraham that he would be a father to many 
people, many nations, and that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Isaiah is saying here that the advent and the victory of the suffering Messiah results in a massive multiplication and spreading of God's people to the ends of the earth. God's people, his church here, is spoken of as a wife. She was barren, that is, not giving birth not reproducing, not multiplying, not growing. But Isaiah says, now she will have many more children. She will have so many children, Isaiah says, that she'll need to make a, or have a big remodeling of her home to have room for all of her children to dwell with her. And you can see that in verses 2 through 3. In verse 2, he says, enlarge the place of your tent, her home. And then in verse 3, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. And so how is this prophecy fulfilled today? Well, after the death and resurrection of Christ, Jesus sent his disciples out to the ends of the earth to make disciples of all the nations. And since then, wherever and whenever the gospel is preached, what is the Spirit of God doing? Even today, he is giving new birth to many who are now called children of God. What I mean is that all who come to faith in Jesus Christ have been born again by the Spirit of God and are therefore children of God, children of Abraham by faith and heirs of the kingdom of God. That is that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, given to many from around the world, he gives a new nature to us. A new nature that is willing and able to repent and to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this new spiritual birth seems to be in the apostle's mind when he's writing Galatians chapter 4. If you have it open in verse 19, he says, My little children, for whom I am in anguish again, anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul is saying here that the process of making disciples, of teaching other people about Jesus and what it means to follow him is similar to child labor. It requires a lot of effort. It produces a kind of anguish of the soul and the goal is to see that person fully formed, raised up, mature. But in this case, he says, fully formed in the image of Christ, fully conformed to who Christ is. Yet despite the anguish of this spiritual labor, the spirit of the servant, the suffering servant, has been giving new birth to millions of people, from among the nations, enlarging that tent of God's church to the ends of the earth and restoring the dignity of God's people. And so rejoice, for Christ was born to give us second birth, a spiritual birth by the Holy Spirit. Now thirdly, we find that Christ was born to uphold the covenant of God. The covenant of God, that's found in this passage as well. The covenant of peace, but why? Why would God do this for a barren and desolate people who disobey time and time again? Why would he do this for an unfaithful people who, in a sense, cheated on him 
over and over again by worshiping false gods and chasing after other things other than their creator. God had married his people by way of covenant. And like an adulterous wife, his people slept around town and took the Lord their God for granted. They shamefully broke that covenant of marriage with the Lord. And hear this, so have we. We have done the same thing. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, and each has gone to his or her own way. And so why would the Lord restore the dignity of his people, so disobedient, by blessing them and multiplying them in this way? We'll look again at verses 7 to 8 in the passage. 7 to 8, he says, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. So why? Why has God done such to bless his people? Because the Lord's compassion is great, and his heart is filled with everlasting love. It's because the Lord is faithful that even though his people broke the covenant god is always committed to his people listen to how god describes his immovable unchangeable and totally committed love to us in verse 10 he says for the mountains may depart mountains seem quite stable right not moving Well, the mountains may depart, and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. We see that this is why Christ came, to uphold God's side of the agreement, his marriage agreement with his people, to reestablish peace between us and God, to restore that which was broken, the wedding between God and mankind And even though we have been so faithless, God always remains faithful. And so, loved ones, rejoice. Christ was born to uphold the covenant of peace. Now, fourthly, Christ was born to beautify the people of God. Look at verses 11 to 17, that portion there. Isaiah is describing for us with elaborate detail, the beautification of the people of God. But he's talking about it in the vivid imagery of an old city being revitalized. You know, for many years here in the city of Ontario, the mayor and the city council and others have been talking about the plans and the intention of revitalizing the old downtown. And it's kind of happening, but in a snail pace, we could say. But even if it is accomplished it will not be as luxurious as what Isaiah is describing here. It will not be inlaid with precious stones of sapphires and gold. But that's what Isaiah says that God will do when he comes to decorate and adorn his bride, the church. This passage is not meant to be taken literal. The precious stones and the jewels adorning the city all represent the glory and the splendor of God adorning and beautifying his people in the end. And we know that because this imagery comes up again at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21. In the vision, an angel tells John, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then he writes, 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so that holy heavenly Jerusalem is the bride, the church, coming down from heaven, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And then John picks up the language from Isaiah in this passage here, when he says, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, and the fourth emeralds. Again, this is not describing an actual city to come in the future. Rather, it is a description of the church who is the bride, the wife of the Lamb, finally, perfectly adorned and presented to her bridegroom, Christ. We remember then that the Son of God came for this purpose as well, not just to cleanse us and forgive us from our sins. Not only that, that's too small for God. No to beautify us, to adorn us in his own glory and splendor by the very power of his resurrection from the dead. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church, his wife, and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing, and that she might be holy and without blemish. This is God's intention. This is one of his goals in sending Christ into the world to ultimately present his church, us, as we believe in Jesus, in the glory of his splendor, adorned for Christ. And so rejoice, Christ was born to beautify us in the very glory of God. From this passage, loved ones, we've seen four reasons why the coming of Christ should be a great cause for us to explode with joy. Christ was born to set us free from the law and its demands over us of perfect obedience and punishment. Christ was born to give us second birth by the Spirit of God, thereby enlarging the church to the ends of the earth. Christ was born to uphold that covenant of peace because of his unfailing love. And also Christ was born to adorn the people of God in his glorious splendor. And here's the question for us at the close. How does your heart respond to this good news? John Calvin says that good news should make Christians happy people. And happy people sing. But he also says that when we lack happiness, which perhaps is the case for some of us this morning, sometimes the very act of singing can cheer up our hearts. And that's what Isaiah is calling us to, to sing in order that our hearts might be cheered. And the hymn writer William Coper expressed this idea beautifully in his hymn, Sometimes a Light Surprises. And that hymn writer, he was a man who battled with severe depression throughout his life even trying to take his life many times. He knew what it was like to fight for joy. And in that hymn, he says, sometimes a light surprises the child of God who sings. The light of one who rises with gentle healing wings. When comforts are declining, God grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after rain. 
And that is my prayer and hope for us today, that even if our hearts are kind of dwindling and not feeling ready to rejoice, well, may God's light surprise us with joy as we sing together, as we rejoice this day. Let us love and sing and wonder before our God and our King. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we rejoice this morning and we ask that you would, by your Spirit, stir up within us, well up within us, great happiness and joy. Let us explode in song with joy this morning for all that you have done, but especially for sending your Son into this world to save us and to restore us back into a right relationship with you, giving us peace with the hope of great glory to come in the resurrection. Lord, for anyone who has not yet come to Christ this day or has not repented and believed in the gospel, we ask that by your Spirit you would do what Isaiah speaks of here, that you would grant a second birth, that you would awaken their heart to see the reality of the goodness of God in the person of Christ and all that you have done. And Lord, give, him the, give that person the freedom and the joy that we have, that we together might worship and enlarge your church, we pray and ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, loved ones, let's